0: Let's begin with prayer. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your word, for your incredible plan of salvation. Lord, I ask that as we study your word this morning, that we would be drawn nearer to you. Please bless this church. Give us ears to hear and softened hearts to listen. Guide us in truth and in grace. Teach us to love like you love, to give grace and to give mercy as you give grace and mercy to us. Amen. All right, this week we're continuing through our uh, kind of short end of summer into winter series that's going through the parables of Jesus. We're not doing all of them, just selected ones. And this week we're gonna be taking a look at Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 14, where we learn about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you did end up grabbing one of those Bibles from the counter, uh, that passage is going to be found on page 877 of that Bible. Uh, For all of your other Bibles, I have no clue what page it's on. Uh, But again, that's Luke chapter 18. We're going to go through verses 9 through 14. And the title of today's message is A Bad Man Saved and a Good Man Lost. I actually stole that title from the title of a children's worship song that's based around this passage, and I just loved it. So uh, this isn't a particularly long passage, so my plan here is just to read through the entire thing, kind of get it into your mind, and then we'll go back and just break it down verse by verse. So if you're already there, or I guess I should say, are we there? All right, I love it. I love it. Okay, so starting in verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, Unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes or lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this meant this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so as we jump into uh, this text here, those of you guys who are familiar with the way that I like to form out uh, a message know that I follow kind of a very similar format where usually we work through it verse by verse. I give you some uh, three points that kind of match with a similar letter. And I actually sought to not do that this time. But uh, as things work out, it's just kind of like the teacher mind in me that likes to see things in an organized way that people can remember and hopefully take some notes on if you're a note taker. Uh, So as we go through uh, this parable today, I'm going to be giving you guys three Ps to look at. And we're first going to look at the problem then the profiles, and we're going to finish up with the promise. So uh, we've got a lot to go through, and I'm just going to jump right in back at verse 9. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, before I fully jump into uh, the promise, something that kind of stood out to me, a little interesting side point, is that it immediately says that he told it to these people who trusted in themselves. Um, I noticed that he didn't say that he said it about some people who trusted in themselves. We're told that Jesus actually went right to those people. Uh, There's no passivity here. There's no gossip here. And um, I just mentioned that as a quick reminder, uh, certainly for myself and just for all of us, that sometimes if we do have conflict or we have an issue, that we should be going to that person, right? Our quest as a Christian is just to love others and to love sacrificially, right? So we need to certainly be honest with each other, be open with each other, And then, of course, if somebody comes to you, be open and honest and be willing to listen. And trust that it's going to be, you know, in the spirit of love and in the spirit of reconciliation. And um, that's one thing that I have noticed. I've been at this church for quite a few years now. And just throughout time, there have been instances where people have come to me with concerns about something I said or something I did. And then also, there's been times where I've gone to somebody else about something that they've said or they've done. And while that can be an extremely difficult thing, what we realize is that it brings healing and it brings restoration. And ultimately, what it does is it makes the body stronger. And I think that's actually one reason why this is a particularly strong body of believers, because we love each other enough to do that. So, That's a kind of a side point. Don't let those things fester and grow. Talk to each other because we love each other, right? As Christ has loved us. So jumping kind of back into the text, uh, who are these people? Now, the text doesn't specifically identify them, but just says that they were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, if you've been here through... Uh, Our whole series on the parables, maybe you remember a few weeks back, um, we were looking at a different parable, but we ended up reading uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 15. And in fact, when we did that, I was preparing for this message, so I took out my phone and I took a picture of the page. And uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 15 says, And he said to them, the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves before men. So, uh, I'd like to say here that I think the immediate audience that he's talking to is the Pharisees, but certainly the audience really expands and broadens to, you know, whosoever trusts in themselves that they are righteous. So, even for us today, if we are reading this and hearing these words and we are trusting in ourselves for some reason that we are righteous, that these words apply to us, that he is Talking to us. Now, in this verse, we also get introduced to our first P, which I already told you guys is the problem. And the problem, of course, is that there's those who justify themselves before men and treat others with contempt. And this really just expands to a much bigger and broader problem and question. Because if these guys are wrong in trusting them in themselves that they are righteous, what makes you right with God? I think that's a fair question. And I think it's one of the most common questions of today, but perhaps also one of the oldest questions that exists. Uh, we see it in scripture in the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 2. He says, but how can man be right with God? Echoes the same thing again in chapter 25, verse 4. He says, How then can man be in the right before God? How could he who was born of woman be pure? So, this isn't anything new, like I said. And I can't help but think about what type of answers I would get to this question how can you be right with God if I was to go down to like Walmart or Fry's and uh, attempt to do some sort of like man on the street type interview. But based on just kind of my experiences in life, my guess would be I would hear a lot of things like, you need to be a really good person, and you need to do lots and lots of good things. In fact, I do remember a a conversation I had with a friend a while back, a guy who I only get, we live in different states, so I talk to him once every few years, and I talked to him, I said, how have things been going? What have you been up to lately? And I remember his response was that, well, my wife and I have been taking the last year to make ourselves better people. And uh, I don't know this guy to, to be a believer. And notice he wasn't even saying that he's trying to make himself right with God. I didn't try to push for motivation there. But I wonder if I had, what his motivation would have been for trying to make himself a good person, why he would have done that. But again, I kind of think this idea of being good to get to God is one of the most dominant ideas out there. I think it's everywhere, and sadly, it's made its way into a lot of people's beliefs, through pretty much every false religion of the world, contains some sort of element of being good to get to God. But I want us to remember just from the very, very beginning here that there's actually only two options. There can only be two answers to this question. Either you can make yourself right with God or you can't. There's just no way that there's a third option. So it means that this is either going to be a matter of human achievement or it's a matter of divine accomplishment. So I want to look at just some scripture and kind of see where it lines up. And I first want to uh, see what it says about us as people. So just some quick ones. The second half of Psalm 143, verse 2, it says, for no one living is righteous before you. And these Old Testament passages these folks hearing this parable would have certainly known. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, "The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick." Or Romans chapter three, verse 12, which echoes Psalm 143. Uh, so, sorry, Psalm 14 verse three is what it echoes. They've all turned aside. Together, they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. So as you can see, there's a problem here. We're not good. So naturally, right, we try to solve this. We try to be good and make up for it. But does our good actually make up for it? What is God's expectation from us? What is God's standard? Again, we only have scripture really to look to for answers here. So remember Leviticus 11 verse 45 says, Be holy, for I am holy. And then Jesus again echoes that same sentiment in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48, maybe making it a little clearer for us, saying, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, maybe the problem is now becoming clearer. Now, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that there aren't like good actions that you can do, or that even that us as Christians shouldn't seek to do good. The point here is just that we should never be confused that our good is going to somehow lead us into a right standing with God. Because the standard is actually perfection. And we can agree that this is an impossible standard. But because I don't like to leave it just all in there, doom and gloom, if you're still there in the text, if you skip down a little bit to uh, verse 27, you find a very, very familiar verse. When asked, then who can be saved? Jesus gives us the answer. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So now verse 10, it transitions us kind of into the next portion of our text, which uh, I will refer to as the second piece. So the first one being the problem and the next one being the profiles. So verse 10 reads, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. So as was common for Jews in the day, they would go up into the temple and they would pray. And then we meet both of these characters in the story, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, Perhaps you're aware of who the Pharisees were. Uh, These Pharisees, they were considered the very, very best of the best. These were very holy men. They kept the law to a T. They pursued purity with an incredible passion. See, they wanted nothing more than to live lives that pleased God. They were very, very sincere, just sincerely misguided, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And then the other guy was a tax collector, and as the name implies, they, collect, they collected taxes, and during Jesus's day, they were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, These were Jews who were collecting money for Jews, for the Romans, who were an occupying foreign enemy. So they were viewed as traitors, and society certainly treated them as if they were traitors. And we know that they did some work that was legitimate. But they were mostly known for collecting much more than what was required and then keeping that extra for themselves. In fact, we see in Luke chapter 19 a little bit of a confirmation of this when Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus. And he even says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And in talking about the tax collectors, uh, Pastor John MacArthur says that they often strong armed money out of people with the use of thugs. Most were despicable, vile, and unprincipled scoundrels. So as we move kind of along here and look at their prayers, remember that what we're doing here is comparing and contrasting the very best of the best with the very worst of the worst. So let's go ahead and take a look at verse 11. It says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So what we see here is uh, the first of two parts of this Pharisee's prayer. And first, we're going to see that he focuses on his moral accomplishments. And then after we talk about that, we'll look and he is sure to tell us about his religious accomplishments as well. Um, But just not to leave anything out, the first thing we notice is that the Pharisee is standing while he prays. I want to make sure to mention that this is a perfectly fine way to pray. There's nothing wrong with it at all. First uh, Kings chapter eight, we see Solomon standing to pray. In Nehemiah chapter nine, we read about the leaders standing to pray. Uh, in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus mentions prayer while standing. Now interesting, if you look in Matthew chapter six, verse five, uh, standing to pray is mentioned. And it is only mentioned that it's bad if the purpose is to be seen by others. Now, I can't prove it, but I can't help but think this might be kind of the reason why Jesus included this in the text. It seems like the Pharisee might want to be noticed by others. Now, if you're reading uh, the ESV Bible translation, which is the one that I used, Uh, you might notice that it also says he was praying by himself. Something kind of interesting as I was uh, just getting into the nuances of this passage is that this phrase is kind of interesting. And if you were to look at a translation like the NASB, it says that he began praying thus in regard to himself. Kind of interesting, giving me the impression that this was less of a prayer— And really more of like a prayer to himself or talking to himself or we could even consider it like a soliloquy. I really liked in Matthew Henry's uh, Bible commentary on this verse, he introduces this passage and he calls it the Pharisee's address to God. And then he kind of adds in like a little side quote in parentheses and he says, for a prayer, I cannot call it. And I certainly agree with that sentiment, because if you look in these verses, uh, the two verses that make up the prayer of this Pharisee, you'll notice that he refers to I five different times, so we can't help but see that he's just directing this to himself. He really is self-congratulating here. And what does he thank God for? He thanks God Ultimately, for what he has done on his own. And it's all about putting others down while lifting himself up. Right? The extortioners, which are like thieves, robbers, the unjust, the adulterers, the sexually immoral. And then he says, even like this tax collector, specifically pointing out the other guy just to show his uh, contempt for him. And This shouldn't shock us. This is very commonplace for the self-righteous, right? You compare yourself to the very worst. That definitely makes you feel better. But I try to think that as Christians and people in the church, do we ever do this? And just try to justify who we are because of how we are morally better than others, and some of you guys might shake this off at first because you're like, no, I don't really compare myself to, the, you know, to ones who are murdering and robbing and stuff like that. But I think we all do it to some degree. Like we even look for the little things that we think put us above others. And maybe it's even something as simple as looking down on other people who, you know, spend their money contributing to companies and stuff that that maybe don't line up with our values. So maybe your prayer sounds something like, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, like these people who have subscriptions to Disney Plus and Netflix and this other person who gives their money to Starbucks Coffee or even this guy who buys Bud Light at Target. So it sounds silly, right? But, but this is kind of the, the same heart of treating other people with contempt. Now, if you hold any of those convictions and don't refuse, that, that's fine. I'm not saying that you can't hold those convictions. I certainly have some of, of those as my own. But I'm just trying to illustrate how we fall into this trap of using little things that other people do that we can look down on simply for the fact of building ourselves up. So then we switch from his moral accomplishments to his religious accomplishments. Let's take a look at verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. So now here, he really thinks that he's impressing God with, with these actions uh, that he's doing. So if, in case you don't know, fasting twice a week is just far more than what was ever required. Uh, Old Testament law did not require that much fasting. Uh, really, there was only one prescribed fast per year, and that was for the Day, for the day of Atonement. Uh, but the Pharisees made sure that they did it twice a week. Because, of course, of how good they are, right? He gives tithes of all that he gets. And again, an attempt to go beyond because he's so holy. In the Old Testament, uh, people did tithe, certainly. They gave 10%, which was to fund like the national theocratic government of the time. Uh, they gave 10% that funded like the feasts and the festivals for the real holy days. And then another 10% every third year, uh, which was for the poor. And in fact, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 tells us that these guys went so far as to even, even tithe on the most minuscule things like spices, mint and dill and cumin. So in order to try to demonstrate their virtue, what they did is... Just made the line even further and further, right? Because they were better and they were more holy. And I can't help but think that uh, a lot of us probably do this too. But maybe for us, the prayer sounds something like, I attend church every Sunday. I'm there for setup. I stay till teardown's complete. I'm involved in a family church. I attend Bible studies Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays. I go to adult Sunday school. I listen to seven podcasts a week. Anytime somebody puts something on the church app, I comment praying, I give it a heart emoji or the hands, right? So again, these are really great things, and I don't want to discourage anybody from doing any of them. I just want, don't want us to ever be confused that these are the things that justify us or that make us right with God. And so now our profile shifts from the Pharisee to the tax collector in verse 13. So let's read verse 13. It says, But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So, again, we'll just kind of go through all the little elements here. Notice first it says he's standing far off. He's not looking for attention. He knows that he's undeserving of even being in the presence of God. He's looking down. He's not standing like the Pharisee, right? It's a sign of humility. This guy knows very clearly how bad he is. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's guilty of. He's overwhelmed with the guilt, with the shame, and he's certainly here to confess it. Interesting that he doesn't even try to bring an ounce of credit to himself because you could imagine that he might even just say like, well, at least I'm the most righteous of the tax collectors because I'm the only one here. But we don't even see that from him. We're told that he's beating his chest, the word used, his breasts, and that's a really kind of unique and interesting action. In fact, it's one that in this culture was only used to show the most extreme cases of anguish and sorrow, one that we actually see not once in the entire Old Testament. However, we do see it one other place in Scripture, If you flip forward a few pages to Luke chapter 23, you're going to see the only other time in all of Scripture where we see this action. And I do hear a few people flipping there. Um, We'll only be there for a second. But it's Luke chapter 23, verse 48. This is at the cross. It says, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. That's the only other time. This is the type of anguish. This is the type of sorrow. This is the type of sadness is being expressed here. But then if you get back to, uh, to our passage, we see the tax collector's only words, he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it seems super simple, but there's also here, uh, there's a lot here as well. In fact, the word that our Bible translation uses as merciful has a much deeper meaning than just simply to show mercy. And this is another one that appears that uh, this verb used in this structure only appears one other time in Scripture, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where the same word is translated as propitiation, which is a word, if you're not familiar with it, which means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So he is clearly asking for mercy, so that's not a, like a bad word there, but he's really saying something more, something kind of the, along the lines of be propitiated in regard to me. And this is important because what he's doing is acknowledging that this is not something that he can do on his own. He needs God to atone for his sin because he's not capable of it. He knows he's too bad. He knows he's too far gone. Only God can blot out his sin, give him grace and favor, and give him mercy. And then he even acknowledges himself as a sinner. And in fact, other translations uh, put it as not a sinner, but the sinner, In fact, uh, one commentary I read on this passage said it just so much better than I ever could, so I figured I would just quote it here. It says, The Pharisee thought of others as being sinners. The publican thinks of himself alone as being the sinner and not of others. This is the mark of true contrition. It finds no comfort at all in the fact that there are many other even greater sinners. It only sees itself before God, only itself as the sinner who is unable to answer to God for his sins. See, we all know that we're sinners. Even the Pharisees knew that they weren't perfect, right? But are we trying to look at those others to justify ourselves? Or are we looking to the holy God, the one who can make us right, like we see the tax collector doing here? So we've talked about the problem. We've gone through the prayers and learned about the profiles of these two guys. And then we wrap up here with the promise. And this is verse 14. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I can't help but... uh, thinking about like the Pharisees being the ones hearing this at how their jaws were probably on the floor at this point, right? They had to be furious. Like they were the good ones and they end up not justified. And then the horrible and vile tax collector leaves justified. It's crazy, right? But the promise is that just like with this tax collector, it is possible, although not by your own merits, to actually be right by God. And in fact, here, because he's justified, we know that the tax collector is made perfectly right right with God. But how can it be? Remember the problem? Remember what the standard was? The standard, it's perfection. So the difference here really is in the Pharisees, the repentance, or sorry, the tax collector's repentance, because the Pharisee repented about nothing. Remember his prayer. He had nothing that he needed to repent for. He had already earned it. He didn't need any mercy. He didn't need any grace. He didn't need any forgiveness. He didn't need any sympathy In fact, the only thing we know is that he's thankful that he's not unrighteous like all these other people who are worse than him. But then again, contrast that with the tax collector. What did he know? He knew he was sinful. He knew he was an outcast. He knew he was guilty. He sought mercy. He sought grace. He was distraught about the condition of his heart and his life. And he knew the only way to be made right with God was to humble himself before God and ask God to make him right. There could be no human achievement, only divine accomplishment. So he humbled himself, and God promised that he would be exalted. So as we get closer to closing here, I pose just another question, just where do you find your righteousness with God? Is it in your works? Is it in your moral superiority? Is it in your extreme religious devotion? Or does it come from a humble heart, one that is completely reliant on God for what only he can do? My encouragement would be for all of you guys this morning is to humble yourself before this God. Confess your sins, turn away from your sins, seek his mercy. And if you've never done that, of course you can do it right now. Um, I think it would be a shame to not end with telling somebody how they can do that this morning. Uh, one of the simplest and easiest ways to lay this out is uh, what's called the Romans Road, And I'll just go through it real quick, some passages from the book of Romans that kind of speak to this. Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." right? We've established that. No one's perfect, no one's good. Then we jump to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he has unconditional love for us and is willing to save sinners. That should be so encouraging for you. We go to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if you remain in sin, the consequence is death. But there is good news that with Christ, there can be this gift of life everlasting. Because our next stop, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are made right, and you now face no condemnation. And then the final one, Romans chapter 10, verse 5, this is the how. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, through faith and not works, God can change you. You don't have to live a life of brokenness and bondage. You don't have to be helpless. Jesus can set you free. He can give you hope. And then I'll go ahead and finish here with a quote from one of my favorite pastors. His name's Stephen Lawson. And he kind of sums it up really good here. He says, He says, We do not go to heaven by climbing a ladder of good works, nor by pulling ourselves up by our good morality, but by trusting in Jesus Christ who died upon the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the clarity of this parable. Lord, we ask that you would move these truths deeper into our hearts. Let us love these truths, let us know these truths, and let us proclaim these truths. Let us not fall into thoughts of people who think that we're good and that think that eternal life is earned and who are seeking commendation from man. Let us rather have a humble heart, a heart that knows that we're wicked, a heart that knows that eternal life is a gift, and a heart that's constantly seeking forgiveness. Lord, may we find our faith only in you. Amen.